I'm going to give everyone a stern criticism. We are not very good here at this church about signing up for things. Because earlier in the week, uh, Mary Beth White texted me and she said, how are we looking for Friday night? And I said, well, the only kids that have signed up is Rob and Jen's two kids. And that, that's all we have. And so then Pam was talking to Libby and I had just texted Mary Beth and then Pam says, boy, we're going to have our hands full Friday night. And I said, well, the Schwing kids are not that bad. I, it should be all right. And, and she said, oh, yeah, exactly. I don't know. But, but then she was like, no, 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 no. We, we've got like 30-some people coming. And so Friday night, we just had a blast. It was a lot of fun, a lot of kids, a lot of mess. And Nancy texted me the next day, and she said, Eric, I mopped all the floors, and they were filthy. And she said, isn't that great? Because we had that many people here. So it was a wonderful time. Thank you for everyone who put all the time and effort into it. And <clears throat> they had chicken nuggets for, for dinner. And I'm going to tell you something. You know, adults, we get really picky. You throw a bunch of chicken nuggets down in front of kids, and they think it's the greatest thing in the world. We always want variety. You just throw those nuggets out, and everyone's happy. So, but it was a wonderful time, and we are uh, very thankful for the kids and the community, and I hope that the parents got to go out and have a good time and maybe do some shopping, have a nice dinner. It was a wonderful time. But let me uh, open us up in a word of prayer before we begin. Uh, we've been doing prayer on Tuesday mornings. We're going we're gonna to stop that and start again in January. We're going to do some prayer initiatives to get people involved. Um, a lot of exciting things coming down the pipe here at Hope. But let me open us in a word of prayer. God, thank you for this day, and thank you for this time. And Lord, I, it, it can be almost like, somebody said to me that Christmas is almost like a finish line because you've got so many things to do and so much stuff that goes on. And, and it's not bad stuff, but Lord, if we're not careful, we can miss you. And Lord, I know in my heart and in my mind, I'm racing this time of year. And there's a lot of things I'm doing that are really good things, Lord, but I don't want to miss you. And I don't want to be so busy, and I don't want to be so preoccupied that Christmas becomes an activity um, rather than a moment in my heart, Lord, that I need to ponder and grasp. It says in the scriptures that when Mary, when the wise men came and the shepherds worshipped him, that she pondered these things in her heart. And Lord, I pray that as you move and as you do things in our life, that we would ponder them and consider them. Thank you for this time, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, the title of my sermon this morning is called Something to Believe in. And it's actually off an old... Uh, glam rock song from the 1990s called Something to Believe in, which was by a group named Poison. Now, uh, one of the things about 1980s, 90s music was like these guys that have crazy hair and makeup and all this stuff. And Eddie, do we have that picture? So, so this is Poison, right? And, and at first you're wondering, if, is this even guys? You know, they wear the makeup and the big hair and everything. And the guy on the right, opposite the guy holding the guitar, his name is Brett Michaels, and he's the lead singer. So we're good with that. But here's the thing about these guys. 
Um, if you listen to secular music and you listen to secular writers long enough, they'll tell you what's really going on in their heart. And to me, I always would say, all right, what's really ticking inside of these guys? And so most of their music, they had a lot, they sold over 50 million albums worldwide. Uh, songs like Nothing But A Good Time, Every Rose Has Its Thorns, uh, Ride The Wind, all these things. But in 1990, they had their biggest song ever, and it was called Something To Believe In. It peaked at number four in the Billboard charts. And this was a song that I think gives a glimpse of what people who don't know Christ what they struggle with. And Brett Michaels wrote this song. He said that the song reflects relationships in his life and observations of life around him as he searched for something to believe in. And I want to read these lyrics to you because, and then I'll tell you, I'll actually tell you who they're about because it's not a secret. He was very open about what this song was about. But listen to these lyrics from Something to Believe in. The first verse goes like this. Well, I see him on the TV. He's preaching about the promised land. He tells me to believe in Jesus, then he steals the money from my hand. And this was about televangelist Jim Baker, who he had given money to because he had believed in him. Some say he was a good man, but Lord, I think he sinned. Second verse, 22 years of mental tears cries a suicidal Vietnam vet. He fought a losing war on a foreign shore only to find that his country didn't want him back. Their bullets took his best friends in Saigon. Our lawyers took his wife, his kids, no regrets. And a time I don't remember from a war he can't forget. This was about his cousin who was wounded in Vietnam. He cried, forgive me for what I've done there, Lord, because I never meant the things I did. The chorus says, and give me something to believe in. If there's a Lord above, give me something to believe in. Oh, Lord, won't you arise? Listen to this verse. My best friend died a lonely man in some Palm Springs hotel room. I got the call last Christmas Eve when they told me the news. I tried all night not to break down and cry as the tears rolled down my face. I felt so cold and empty, like a lost soul out of place. This was his bodyguard when he would be on tour. A big, huge man who had died of a drug overdose. And the mirror, mirror on the wall watch my sees my smile fade again. Give me something to believe in. Give me something to believe in. If there's a Lord above, give me something to believe in. Oh, Lord, arise. The last verse, now this is a guy who came from nothing and became a millionaire in music, but notice what the last verse says. I drive by the homeless sleeping on a cold, dark street like bodies in an open grave. Underneath the broken old neon sign used to read, Jesus saves. A mile away live the rich folk, and I see how they're living it up. While the poor may eat from hand to mouth, the rich are drinking from a golden cup. And it just makes me wonder why so many lose and so few win. 
give me something to believe in. If there's a Lord above, give me something to believe in. Lord, arise. And you know, I'm going to tell you something. That we look at, like, you would look at that picture and you go, what would these guys possibly have to say about anything? But deep inside everything, take away the glam rock, take away the outfits, take away the makeup, the crazy hair and everything. They're looking. They're searching. They're lost. They're desperate. And really, that song could be the theme for our society as people are looking, striving, dying, agonizing for something to believe in. You feel a desperation in our world. You feel it all around. People are searching, people are hurting, people are trying to figure it out. Last week we talked about Jesus returning to his hometown and despite the fact that people recognized that his wisdom came from God, despite the fact they recognized that his miracles came from God. In Mark 6, 6, it says they were offended by him. Next, we see Jesus send his disciples out to go do it, to preach, to heal, to give the good news. That's what gospel means, good news. How many of you have ever had a phone call start out and says, I have bad news? How many of you ever had a phone call and somebody says, I have news, it's good and you kind of, okay, great, what is it? This is good news. Finally, we read that John the Baptist, at the end of his life, through poor leadership of Herod. So now Jesus is calling his disciples back, back to him, to give a report. And what you're going to see is there's tremendous momentum building. This tremendous momentum in the ministry that's happening is starting to build and it's starting to go. And they're coming to follow Jesus. And guess what? I bet you some are even starting to follow the teachings of the disciples. And the disciples are going, hey, this is working. This is going. And they come back to meet with the teacher. So let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Very, very famous passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000. In my Bible, they actually, the whole passage is highlighted in yellow, which wasn't real smart because it bleeds through to other pages. But nonetheless, it's highlighted. But let's look at Mark chapter 6. We'll start at verse 30. Our three for the road, number one, is judgment or compassion. Judgment or compassion. Because I'm going to tell you that your life will move on one of those two things. Judgment or compassion. Let's look at verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all the things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Have you ever had, like, children around you or grandchildren, and they're all trying to tell you something, and they're so excited to tell you that it's like in craziness, like you can't even hear what's going on. I remember leading a, a, a ministry event with a bunch of children, and it was right after Christmas, and I said, who had a great Christmas? And ah, the kids are all screaming, and what was the favorite thing you got? And I'm like, one at a time. And there's like 60 kids just screaming all at once, different things like that. Well, I see the disciples, and they're coming back, and they're just bellowing it out. Jesus, we did this, we did it. Oh, Jesus, you should have seen that. Jesus, go, whoa, 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 easy, guys. Easy. And Jesus said to him, come aside by yourself to a deserted place and rest for a while. For there were many coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. See, this is the thing about Jesus. How often do we read that after high points of ministry, what did Jesus do? 
went off by himself and prayed, right? So Jesus is saying, hey, listen, guys, you probably could use a bite to eat, but you need to refill the tank. And I don't mean just food-wise, I mean spiritually. You need to refresh. You need to recalibrate. You need to refocus. You need to be renewed. And the only way we can do that is with you being with me. So they departed to a deserted place in a boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. So they're going across the lake. As they're going across the lake, the crowd runs around the lake. And as they're running around the lake, and this big group is running, when you see a large group running, what do other people do? They follow along. So the next thing you know, Lee and Sherry are following along, and what are you doing? I don't know, everyone's going. Some guy, everyone wants it, you just got to come. And then the next thing you know, it's more and more people. And they get to the other side, and I think Jesus is going, you look exactly like the people that we were trying to get away from. So, verse 34. And when Jesus came out, he saw the multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Now, you don't have to read into this too far to think this. What do you think the disciples thought when they saw that crowd? Oh, it's kind of like, you know, when you're cruising along and you're going 70 miles an hour down the highway and everything's good, and then all of a sudden you turn a corner and you see more red lights than you ever want to see. Pam and I were, were going to a game a few months ago, and we're riding along, listening to music, having fun, talking and that, and all of a sudden we get an alert on the phone. It says, uh, slow down up ahead, and it adds a few minutes to our trip. No worries. Slow down up ahead. Adds a few minutes to the trip. Then all of a sudden it says, slow down up ahead. Hour and a half. Wait. We sat for like an hour in there. And I think they get, Jesus gets into this situation and he sees these people and he has compassion on them. The disciples get there and they, so let's make this hit home. Judgment or compassion. What moves you? See, one of the things that I've realized in my life is that my wife, I love her to pieces. She's needy. But here's the thing. If you think she's needy, you should see the guy she married. He's even worse. See, look at that. <laughs> Rob's going, we're going to scholarship the schools on the marriage conference. But one of the things that Pam and I try and constantly keep in the forefront is thinking and moving and modeling compassion. Because everyone is needy. It may be in different areas, but everyone's broken. Everybody's needy. Everybody, listen, non-believers are needy. Believers, needy. 
Everyone is. But the difference is, is how do we handle these things? Is it with judgment or compassion? Is it with anger or striving to understand? I remember a good friend of mine that I did youth ministry with for years. His name was Bill Cunningham. I used to just call him Billy the Sea. Billy the Sea has children with different learning disabilities. And one time, I remember just talking with Bill, and he opened my mind to a whole different world that he lives in, of trying to help his children. And it changed the way I look at special needs because I saw what this guy does. I saw how he loves, how he cares, and how he tries immensely and then it would drive me crazy then when we would be around and people would kind of judge different things. Because I would go, you have no idea what this guy goes through. How different would our stress levels be if we got out of the boat and were more like Jesus and less like the disciples? How many people get stressed out by the needs that are constantly crushing in around you? But what if we just looked at it and said, hey, you know what? They're needy, just like me. See, everyone laughed when I said that Pam was needy because they were going to assume that I was going to say, I'm not. And then it's not funny, right? But the reality is, we're all needy. So let's keep going here. Three for the road, number two. Bring what you have, trust him for the rest. Look at verse 35. Now, if you want me to tell you or explain to you why I know the disciples are grumpy, pouty, and focused on judgment rather than compassion, you only have to look at one verse. So look at the end of verse 34. So he began to teach them many things. Verse 35. When the day was now far spent, what's missing? No one wrote about what he was teaching. Why didn't they know what, the, what he was teaching? Why didn't anyone record what Jesus was saying? Because they were all sitting there grumpy. They were all sitting there annoyed. How many of you have let your emotions or your anger or your annoyment or your judgment prevent you from learning something? How many of you have missed something great because of your own stubbornness? I know I have. So... After this long day of teaching that they missed completely, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go to the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. Now, what, point number two, why we know the disciples are off, off base here. Number one, they missed the teaching. Number two, they come to Jesus with a solution rather than a question. I get into weird situations with God when I start offering solutions. How many of you say, oh, Lord, let your will be done as long as it's this, this, and this? And may I ever say those prayers? And so they say to the disciples, come and say, hey, Jesus, I know you don't quite understand the whole situation going on here, but you know there's people hungry and that. So we talked about it over here, and... What we think you need to do is send them away. We don't have any food. You know, come on, Jesus. What are you doing here? 
And what are they totally discounting in the whole equation? Him. Because they're telling him rather than asking him. What if they would have came up and said, you know, Jesus, some people are really getting hungry. Like, what do you think we should do? I don't know, guys. Let's think about it. What could we do? But instead, Jesus has to lead the grumpios. So, verse 37. And he answered them, and he said to them, you give them something to eat. Now, I actually think Jesus' response is brilliant. Hey, you came here telling me what to do. Now I'll tell you what to do. You said send them away. I say feed them. You give them something to eat. Now, this isn't as far-fetched as you think. What were the disciples just doing earlier? Remember what it says? I'm going to flip back to it because it's good stuff here. Chapter 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve to himself, so he began to send them out by two by two, and he gave them power over unclean spirits, commanded them to take nothing with them, and then at the end of that, it says, so they preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed them with oil who were sick, and they were healed. So in my mind, I'm going, hey, this isn't far-fetched. What if one of the disciples said, Jesus, okay, we'll feed them. We'll pray, and we'll feed them. Because you gave us power to cast out demons. You gave us power to heal people. So why couldn't we feed them? But I'm going to tell you something. When you choose judgment over compassion, it goes astray. Because look at this. Verse 37. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Wait a minute, what did money have to do with this? First off, you don't even have the money. Secondly, I don't even know where you would go to buy that much bread. But do you see that when you are sitting in a judgment seat, you're always going to look for what's lacking. And guess what? You are lacking. We just talked about that. You're needy. You don't have enough. You can't do it. And what do they do? They point out, hey, Jesus, this is impossible. It can't be done. And then they not only point that out, but they give sarcasm. How many of you like sarcasm? Just kind of... You ever try really, really hard to do something, and you're striving to do something, and then you always got the sarcastic guy, ah, oh, that's stupid, I never... And I was like, dear Lord, I don't know if you do this anymore, but can you strike him with lightning? You know, like, you just feel like, oh my gosh, because I don't need that kind of energy coming at me, Right? Well, listen to what Jesus said. And I, listen, I love Jesus because he answers things in a way that I never would. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Jesus is the king of one-line statements. He really is. Remember the woman caught in adultery? Well, whoever hasn't sinned casts the first stone. Bends down and starts doodling on the ground. What are we supposed to do? Spend 200 denarii like we have that to go buy bread and everything? And Jesus doesn't answer sarcastically. He doesn't strike him with lightning, although that would be very interesting. Instead, what does he say? Go see what you have. Go see what you have. And they found out that they had five loaves of barley and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. 
And when he had taken up the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before him. And the two fish he divided among them all. One of the things I think is important, I always say this to people who I marry. I always say, listen, there are times in marriage where life is going to seem like you are lacking a lot. And guess what? You might be, but give thanks for what you have. Always with a grateful heart. Be thankful for what you have. And I guarantee, while Jesus is thanking God for five loaves and two fish, the disciples are going, oh my gosh. This is a train wreck. We don't have enough food. Shh, he's praying. Great. Wonderful. And he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 basketfuls of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. That doesn't count women and children. Conservatively, this has to be a crowd of 10,000 people. But here's the amazing thing. If you're number six and you're sitting right near the front of the line, you know that Jesus performed a miracle. If you're number 5,832... All you know is the disciples gave you food, and you're going, guys, thank you so much. Peter, thank you so much. Thank you for blessing me with food for my, me and my wife and my family. And Peter's going, yeah, yeah, no problem. No problem. And at the end of it, they each have a to-go box. They all leave with extra. Because, guys, one of the things that I think is kind of amazing is there's been different times in my life where I'm saying, all right, Lord, like, I'll bring what I have, but I don't know how this is going to work over here. So you're going to have to fill some gaps. And then God does things where you go, whoa, 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 that was way beyond gap filling. Because God shows up. And he shows up in these areas. But I'm going to tell you that God's biggest struggle is not raising people from the dead. It's not healing a paralytic. It's not casting out demons. It's not even feeding 5,000. God's biggest struggle is our hearts. It's dealing with us. We think the big deal is, well, God, I don't know if you can solve this problem. Your God's going, oh my gosh, that's nothing. You're the problem. You're the hardest one to convince. Why? Because he loves us unconditionally. He gave us free will. And because we have free will, we think we know better than God. And we live our lives and we act that way. I remember somebody telling me one time, they said, Eric, I don't believe in that God. So I don't know how anyone can believe that in God at all. I said, okay, I just want to ask one question. I said, if all the knowledge of the universe, all the knowledge that ever existed equaled 100%, how much of it do you have mastery over? And he stopped and he goes, maybe 2%. So I said, so you just admitted to me that there's 98% that you don't know. And he went, well, but that's not a fair question. I said, why isn't it a fair question? You're telling me you don't know hardly anything. And I said, and you're calling me stupid. 
Maybe we both are. Those who had been eaten, had eaten, was about 5,000 men. Now let's make this hit home. Bring what you have and trust him for the rest. At Thanksgiving we give thanks, and I love that. We should always give thanks. The sooner that you realize that Jesus is filling the gaps in your life and has been for years, the better off you'll be. Jesus helps me even do my part. See, I always used to think, well, God, I'll do my part. You do yours. I think Jesus says, Eric, you got half that right. I'll do my part, and I'll help you do yours. Because I will make you fishers of men. For years, I used to go fishing with my father. And every single time I went fishing with my father, I caught way more fish than my father ever caught. Hands down. I would catch my limit every single time my father would barely catch anything. Until I realized that every single time I went fishing with my father, I would see out of the corner of my eye, him set his hook in the boat, and then he would go, hey, Eric, can you hold this? I want to get a sandwich out of the cooler. Oh, my God. Dad, there's a fish on this. And he would go, oh, Eric, great job. Reel it in. And I did this. Guys, this went on. I'm, like, traumatized. This went on for, like, 20 years in my life. And I was a grown man. I was out. I got a picture in my office with this big string of bass that I caught. And I remember out there, my dad set the hook. He goes, hey, take my pole for a second. I no. He goes, what? I said, no. He said, I'm asking you to take my pole. I said, no. He goes, you're the son. I'm the father. Take the pole. No. Why won't you take the pole? I said, dad, I know you have a fish on it. No, I don't. It's probably stuck on the bottom. No, it's not stuck on the bottom, Dad. It's bobbing like this. You have a fish on it. Reel it in. And then I'll never forget this. He looked at me and said, please, take the pole. It's more fun watching you do it. I do it all the time. And the thing is, Jesus keeps looking at the disciples and he's saying, guys, I don't need you here. I want you. I want you to engage I want you to be part of it. Peter, go and feed these people and tell them that they have a loving father and pray with them. Guys, soften your hearts. Let's finish this up. Mark 6, 45. Three for the road, number three. Challenges will come and we either grow through them or get run over by them. We either grow through them or get run over by them. Let's look at verse 45. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. Now listen, I don't know if Jesus needed to give the disciples a break from the crowd or if Jesus needed a break from the disciples. But either way, he just kind of said, Look, go to your room. Get in the boat and just... Take a break. And these guys probably got in the boat and started rowing out there, and Jesus went, oh, Father, thank you. Whew. These guys are wear me out. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Why? Because he's got to refuel. He's got to say, Father, the need is crushing. The need is is never ending. Father, I need to be close to you. 
And when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and, it, and he was alone on the land. The other thing I think is interesting is the disciples never asked, how are you going to get to the other side? I think maybe the disciples were like, let him figure it out. Bread floats, let him make some more bread and walk on that. Then he saw them straining and rowing, for the wind was against them. So they're not sailing, they're rowing. And in the fourth watch of the night, like three in the morning, how'd you like that watch? He came to them walking on the sea, and I love this, and would have passed them by. Jesus isn't going up saying, guys, please slow up, let me in the boat. <laughs> Jesus is going, oh, walk right by these guys. Because right now, they're annoying me. Right now, despite what they've heard me say, despite what they've seen me do, despite what I've empowered them to say, despite what I've empowered them to do, they're still stinking stubborn. Man. And he's walking right by. But he's close enough that they can see. And listen to these guys. <laughs> and when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out. I just think Jesus got me going, oh my gosh, guys. What is wrong with you? For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he went up into the boat to be with them. And the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. But verse 52 is the most important verse of the entire time this morning. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. They didn't understand. They saw all this stuff and didn't get it. Let's make it at home. Challenges will come and we either grow through them or we get run over by them. You know, everyone loves an underdog. Do you remember what was in 2018 when the Eagles won the Super Bowl and they used to wear those dog hat things because they were underdogs, you know? And in Philadelphia, they just kind of loved it. Yeah, we're underdogs. The Rocky movies, you know, everyone loves an underdog. You know, this, this poor Italian guy in Philly and he's striving, he's got everything against him, but he rises above it and becomes heavyweight champion of the world. We all love those stories until we're the underdog. We really don't like being the underdog. The disciples have just come off a spiritual high of going out preaching and God using them powerfully. Yet, remember when we talked last week about Herod? That he knew that John was a just man and a holy man, but yet, because of the crowd, he handed John over to be beheaded? Well, the disciples have gone through all this stuff but guess what? I wonder how much of it was in their own powers. And even though God was using them, I wonder if a lot of it was about them. And then the yet came when they got out of that boat and saw that needy crowd. And they went, I'm done ministering. This is me time. I'm not doing this. I think Jesus was willing to walk right by because he saw the stubbornness in their heart. 
Somebody said to me, he said, Eric, if the disciples wouldn't have stopped Jesus, where would he have gone? I said, I wonder if he would have gone to uh, Gadarenes and got the guy that he casted the demons out of. <laughs> I wonder if he would have went and said, hey, I reconsider. Uh, number one, we need a boat. Number two, you get in the boat. Where are the rest of the disciples? I have no idea. Don't worry about that. We're starting over. They're too stubborn. They're too hard. Many Christians, trials come, and they either walk through them with the Lord or they get run over by them. I have friends that things have happened in their life, and they're angry about different things, and it's like, well, they left their church. But they didn't leave their church to go to another church. They just stopped going to church. It's almost like they've just quit God or something. And they're like, well, Eric, I still believe. But yeah, da, da. And like I said, they've just been put on the shelf. They have so much to offer. But they're just on the shelf. Why? Because they've just been run over. And, and whatever it was, it just hit them like that crowd. They got out of the boat and they went, I'm done, Lord. I can't do it. And Jesus moves with them and then finally says, just get in the boat, guys. Just leave. I'll catch up with you later. You know, I look back at that song, Something to Believe in, I think it's flawed. And here's why I think the song's flawed. It examines mankind's flaws and blames them on God. Do you ever notice how we kind of subtly do that? Like somebody will do something horrible to someone else and will say, look, what in the world, God? And I think God's saying, wait, what? Did I do that? I flooded the earth, and then I promised you I'd never do it again. I didn't make this person treat this person that way. They chose to do it. We often ask God to give us something to believe in, but really I think it's a heart issue. In other words, think if Jesus was sitting here. What if Jesus turned to us and said, hey, you know what? I'll give you something to believe in, but before I give you something to believe in, I want to know why you don't believe. What if we turned it around that way? See, because the fact that you're here this morning, the fact that we can breathe this morning, the fact that there's blood pulsing through our bodies and through our brains, and we can, like this morning, I woke up, and during the night, I didn't think about a thing, but when I woke up, my brain turned on, and I could remember who I am, where I am, what's going on, what I'm doing, everything. And I think, now, how does that work? And God goes, Eric, that's something to believe in. Love is something to believe in. God's love for us, our love for one another. But sometimes I think we always have these heart issues and we go, God, you got to prove it to me. you got to do this and then I'll believe. And Jesus does thing after thing after thing after thing. Christmas Eve, I'm going to talk about this. They did a study about how many things cross-reference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's tens of thousands of things. And I almost feel like Jesus is saying, how many more do you need to believe? Is 30,000 enough? Is 40,000 enough? How many things do we have to connect for you to believe? But what did Thomas say? Unless I put his, my hands in his side, unless I touch his hands, I won't believe. And he sat in the front row. So today, 
I don't know what's going on with us. But I knew this, that so many people are searching for something to believe in, and they're missing it because their heart is filled with judgment versus compassion. I think so many people are looking at what's lacking in their life rather than saying, Lord, I'm going to bring what I have and I will give it to you. And that's what I'll do. I'll give it to you. And you do whatever. And then I also think that there's people who we constantly have to say, Lord, soften my heart. Joni Erickson is a famous Christian speaker, author, who when she was a teenager, she dove into a pool and she broke her neck. And she said, you know, up to that point in her life, she had, you know, she's paralyzed from the from shoulders down. I mean, she can move her arms a little bit, but she's very limited. And she said, you know, I think that I loved God before that I knew a little bit about God, but maybe not too much. But she said, God wanted me to be with him so bad that he broke my neck. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't know if I'd have that same attitude. But that's a woman who said, I'm going to take God and I'm going to strive through this. Versus a lot of people, me, I would go, hey, God, I'm done. I'm going to get in the boat because I can't take this. But that's how much God loves us. He's patient with us. He's kind with us. He's filled with compassion. He loves us. And I think as he's walking up to that boat, there's a part of him that wants to walk by, and then there's a part of him that he's saying, guys, just call out to me. Call out to me. I think about the rich young ruler, and when he walked away from Jesus, I think Jesus in his heart and his mind is going, just turn around. Come on, man. Engage with me. Let's strive through this. Let's talk. Let's go. Let's do something. But so many of us, as soon as it gets tough, we go, all right, stepping back. I'm out. We're striving through. I look at times in my life, and when I've strived through these situations, through the hardships, through the trials, through these different things, God has come to me in such powerful ways that I would never change it any time in my life. After I had my back operation years ago, I sat for months and stared at a ceiling because I was in so much pain. And I'm going to tell you that in the depths of that pain, he was there. And he told me things about myself that I didn't even realize. And he told me things about him that I didn't know. And when I sat in those MRI machines and different things like that for hours in a coffin, basically, crying out, he was there with me. He was there. And I'm so thankful that God didn't, he didn't allow my heart to get hardened. He said, Eric, I'm going to meet you there. I'll be there. I'll go with you. If you go to the heights, I'll be there. If you're in the depths, I'll be there. What did David say? Even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, you're there. That's something to believe in. Let's stand up. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. The worship team's going to come up. I do this periodically, but I just want you to know, if you're in this room and you're somebody you think, hey, you know what, I'd love to pray with something, somebody, 
If you are comfortable praying with someone, raise your hand. All right? There's a lot of people here. Here's why I say that. If you're someone here who you're struggling, it could be anything. Those people who raise their hand, raise them again. Right? Look around the room. These are people that you could walk up with. You don't even have to say anything. You can just walk up to them and say, Ed, I'm struggling. Will you pray for me? And he'll pray. He'll pray. And maybe help you to strive through. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. And Lord, I, I want to say that I would not be the stubborn, hard-hearted person but my track record says I would be. And so, Lord, I just pray that my heart would be softened. Lord, I pray for musicians like Brett Michaels who would write the song that's just filled with hurt and pain and doubt. And, Lord, I pray that he would not take the flaws of man and attribute them to you because it says in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Lord, to equate your actions to man is almost like blasphemy, Lord. Because you're not like us. And I'm so grateful that you're not like us because I don't need another friend. I need a savior. I need help, Lord. Because judgment can fill my heart. It can fill my mind and it can flee out of my mouth. Lord, give me compassion. Lord, I feel like when I pray, all I bring out is what is lacking. Lord, we need this, we need that, we need this, do this, do this, do this. But Lord, let me give thanks for what we have. Thanks for what you're doing. And Lord, finally, I pray, Lord, that as you move forward, in this church, in these people, that we would strive to be your children. And obedient, not so we can say, well, we're obedient, but obedient because we love, and obedient because obedience to you is the greatest path forward. Lord, where else would we want to be than at your feet? Listening, learning, growing, striving, pushing through, and not getting run over. Lord, our world has so many people who've tried institutional religion and it's left them empty. Lord, we need relational ministry. We need to sit. We need to learn. We need to rejoice. We need to fill our hearts and minds with your scripture, Lord, so that it would transform us. All scripture is God-breathed, useful in teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in all righteousness. David says it best. How can a young man keep his way pure? I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Lord, hide your word in us. So that, Lord, when those trials come, when the struggles come, when the hardships come, when the hurt comes, that what is hidden would become visible. Thank you for this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.